Say It Loud Network presents Corner Table Talk. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of Corner Table Talk. Today, I am honored to have as my guest, distinguished writer and author of best-selling books, The Beautiful Struggle, We Were Eight Years in Power, Between the World and Me, which she won the National Book Award for, um, Water Dancer, and um, he is also a recipient of the MacArthur Fellowship, uh, author of Marvel Comics, Black Panther, Captain America, and most recently, I read he is writing the screenplay for dun, 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 Superman, J.J. <laughs> Abrams directing. He is also a husband to Kenyatta and a father to Samari. Tanahasi Coates, welcome, man, and thank you so much for taking some time out of your crazy schedule to join me here. Thanks for having me. Just just for clarity's sake, I'll get in trouble if I don't say this. Um, J.J. is producing. We don't have a director yet. Ah, okay. So there, there's an opening, in other words. There's a job opening for somebody. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. So, um, Ta-Nehisi, I, I kick things off with what I call short order questions, just some things I like to uh, just get a, a quick take from, from my guests on. So that's all right. I'm going to get things rolling on that with you. So what is in heavy rotation on your playlist these days? What do you oh, listen to? You know what? That was that, that, that Isley, um, what you call it, Earth, Wind and Fire versus happened the other day. Right. And I've been like going through the Isley Brothers catalog. And I, and I knew this before the verses happened. And I tried to explain it to folks. But So this is 2021. The Isley Brothers had their first real hit in 1959. So if I have this right, you were talking about over 60 years, I think. Right. Um, right. Um, of artistry and that is remarkable for any artist yeah yeah like that, that is that is a ridiculous a ridiculous ridiculous achievement and so I've just been going through like just thinking about like how that was like even like possible mm-hmm. you know and um yeah that's 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 just been the main thing you know our music is a big uh you know inspiration for for my own writing um so it's, it's been a lot of you know eyes I mean love earth wind and fire too no shade to earth wind and yeah fire. no this there but you know you're right man about the Isleys, I mean, I think there's a case for them to be made for them maybe as one of the best bands of all time. And then you think about Jimi Hendrix joining them and Ernie Isley's guitar playing and how that just came up after that. I mean, it's crazy, right? Right. I don't don't know who else has done that, like in pop music. I'm sure there's somebody, but I I don't know who it would be. That that is incredible. Just like the catalog, it's it's a ridiculous, ridiculous catalog. I know, man. I love it. Um, So on the the subject while we're on music of, of writing, do you prefer quiet or do you listen to something uh, when you're writing? I do. I listen to a lot of music when I'm writing. Yeah. Lyrics or no lyrics? I can I can actually do lyrics for the most part. Well, yeah. I find that challenging, man. I, find I know. That... A lot of people do. A lot of, a mm-hmm. lot of people do it. A lot of writers do. But for me, no, I can um, I can generally do it. I can generally okay. do it. Yeah. Well, that's why you make the big bucks, man. <laughs> um, so what is what is your footwear of choice these days? I've seen you in some pretty fly kicks uh, <laughs> in various things I've seen you in. So, uh, so I saw question. the ones you wore with AOC a year ago, some fly Jordans. So, what are you wearing these days? That's a great question because <laughs> uh, basically, you know, I was, I, you know, I'm a kid of the '80s and a period of, um, you know, uh, really, you know, the Jordans come out, but there's a lot of violence associated with the Jordans in that period. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't, like, I, I wasn't 
doesn't allow any Jordans, Air Max, anything like that. And I've basically been going back to my childhood, you know, building this collection of Jordans and, and Air Max. You know, it's it's it's, it's pretty insane. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm I I I generally tend to love the classics. So, you know, I go for you know any any version of the first, you know, the the, the ones, you know, for the Jordans, the same for Air Max. Yeah. You know, um, but I'm always on the hunt, always on the lookout. I can see that, man, and, and I love how you roll out to an interview in a in a cool sweatshirt. I see you in Howard stuff sometimes. Yeah. Like, man, this cat's on primetime TV <laughs> in a Howard sweatshirt. You know, you gotta you gotta have some clout. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm I'm just trying to represent, you know? Yeah, well, you do that well. Um, What time of day, man, do you feel the most creative energy? Oh, the morning by far. Morning. By far. I, and I really try to reserve the mornings, although I'm I'm generally less than successful at that. But if I, if I was in my ideal space, you know, I wouldn't deal with anything outside of writing before about one. Mm-hmm. Are you a coffee guy in the morning or green mm-hmm. juice or coffee? No, I'm big. I'm a big coffee guy. Uh, between myself and my wife, we, we ground our own beans, uh, do the French press and everything. It's a whole ritual. Good man. Yeah, we do that too, man. Put a little cinnamon in in, in the coffee. Even. Oh, I had to try um, it. I had to yes, try it. It's a nice little touch, yeah. Are you, doing um, you do it at the end? I do it after we grind the beans. Uh, and when we have it ground, I then sprinkle cinnamon in, in before I dump the water in. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Is this already ground cinnamon or do you ground it like on Already the ground. Yeah, no, okay. I haven't gotten that deep. I'm not grounding it. <laughs> <laughs> See, right. man, you, you got, got to take it up a level. Um, <laughs> because I read uh, your brilliant memoir and I really want to dig into that in a few and, and talk about um, Beautiful Struggle but so I, I know a little bit about um, your upbringing and that you, you spend a little time on the court so I want to know how's your jumper these days terrible 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 and, and the only reason why I played when I was a kid was because you had to there was just no there was no universe in which you did not you know play basketball it just didn't that, that wasn't possible alright well that's honest enough alright um, give me Tanasi your fondest childhood memory as it relates to to food. Oh man, that's such a great question. So my my mom is a really really good cook and a great baker. Um, but I think everybody would agree that my dad is exceptional. And so I'm I'm from you know Baltimore, and mm-hmm. so we're right on the Chesapeake Bay, and so seafood is a, is, a, is a big big deal. Um, and my dad, uh, you know, because there there are a lot of us, seven kids, four different mothers. Um, I just have great memories of my dad, you know, piling the kids into that little house that we had, and you know, frying shrimp, you know. I mean, frying scallops, you know, oysters, you know, home fries or French fries or whatever he was doing, frying potatoes, mm-hmm. however he was, you know, wanting to do it. Hush puppies, if you were lucky, you would get, you know, some crab cakes, um, lump crab cakes, the real joints. And, you know, it would be on paper plates. And it's not like, you know, it would be all set out on a, on a buffet. You know, he would be doing whatever he was doing and you had to bring your plate over and get whatever you got <laughs> when you got it. And, your pops had some rules from what I remember. Yeah, 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 he definitely did. Yeah. Definitely did. But it was it was a that's probably my fondest you know food food related memory although I, I got quite a few I was mm-hmm. very well you know exposed and okay. you know it's interesting well, you know because we think now like food being this like sort of high class thing mm-hmm. uh, well some people think of it that way so sure you don't but some people do and there is just an amazing amount of culture you know um, that 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 we have you know despite our, our our circumstances and I think about that with my father and how he came up and I think about that with my mother too you know but there was a lot of culture a lot of food culture in the house that's fantastic man and. You know, next time you head out to L.A. and, and drop by Post and Beam, I'm going to have to have you try the uh, vegan crab cake since I know you're a crab cake aficionado. I can't and wait. Why? 
that's yeah, a, yeah. see what, see if they pass the the, the test from uh, <laughs> you know from what you know of, of yeah. crab cakes. So I would I would normally ask guests um, to tell me about their favorite local dining establishments, but you know I, I kind of feel like lately the sense I've gotten you've been very low key this last year, man, and there's been so much going on. I don't know right. if we want to expose necessarily where you hang, although the the business owners I'm sure would appreciate. No, I can do that. Out. I can do that. Okay. I can do that. Right. Tell me see. tell me your spots, man. Yeah, sure. Because what happened was when, when we had the shutdown here, and I guess, you know, frankly, is is part of the reason why I wanted to be here with you, you know, even though I don't talk too much. Um, I, you know, I feel like, um, and I guess this goes back to what I was saying earlier about the food culture. Um, I, you know, I feel like food has been integral to my writing. You know, I've had relationships with, with restaurants here in New York um, that I love and, you know, just adore. Um, and so seeing, you know, what happened, you know, during the shutdown and seeing how little aid, frankly, um, that was offered, you know, it's, it, 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 you know, you just, you, 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 you have to think about it, you know? So like the one that comes to mind, you know, I mean, I could go down, down the line, but, but the one that comes to mind really is Boulevard Cafe yeah. in, in, in Harlem, which is my spot, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, which I just, I just have a tremendous, tremendous amount of, you know, love for soul food, Southern, you know, um, just some, just some great, great, great cooking, you know, going on up there. Um, I, I did a lot of my writing at the Hungarian bakery, uh, in Morningside Heights, you know, I, there is not a book I have published, I don't think, um, that uh, that I didn't, you know, spend some time. You Are know, you superstitious like, that way? Is that part of it or is it the comfort or both? No, nah, it was just really comfortable. Really, mm-hmm. really comfortable. Mm-hmm. You know, and maybe I've gotten superstitious now, but I don't know. I, I didn't, you know, when I was working on the water dance and I was getting to the end, um, which I wrote a lot of at Rose Cafe, actually, a version of <laughs> in, I was Venice? in Venice. Yes, yes, wow. yes. I'm, okay, that's a great I'm, room, by the way, man, isn't it? It is. It's a great, great room. Yeah. And maybe that's what it comes down to. Like part of it mm-hmm. is the room, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like the vibe you get. Um, but yes, yeah, so I, you know, I spent a lot of time there. Uh, Jeffries and, and Joseph Leonard in, in the village down here. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely uh, incredible. And I don't know why. Is that I, an oyster bar? Uh, Jeffries is. Jeffries yeah. actually is. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they that's their thing. Um, and mm-hmm. they and they do a lot, you know, a, a lot more than that. Um, mm-hmm. But no, you 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 have it right. You have it exactly exactly right. Yeah. You know. Um, so that don't, both of those. I mean. Both of those have been been my spot. Yeah. You know, you, know, you and, turned me on to the Boulevard, man. Uh, several years ago, after we had yeah. first met, I was Did coming back to New York. Oh yeah, I went Nate there, man. It was fantastic. So thank you, <laughs> thank you very much for that. All right, so this is going to be a tough one for you, man. I'm going to put you on the spot here. Gil Scott Heron says there ain't no such thing as a Superman. Tell me why can't you understand that there ain't no such thing as a Superman? You say what? Uh, metaphorically, that's probably true. <laughs> you know, that's probably. Bill's got a point. He probably does. He probably does. Yes. All right. All right. We'll we'll leave it there. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I want to um, first say, you know, in preparing for to talk to you today, man, I, um, you know, I did my research and a lot of notes, of course. And it was funny, you know, I, I this this um, funny time kept occurring to me. I played a little basketball in my day. And uh, Norm Nixon and I have been friends for a long time and business partners, a former point guard. And I remember him coming to visit me in New York and our normal game was down at the boys club, you know, downtown. And one of my friends who didn't make it in the NBA, but thought he should have when he heard Norm was coming, you know, he went extra hard that day. He's the type of brother, man, that calls plays out in a pickup game and they're always for him. And I told myself, I am not going to do a Pete Davis to ta and try to be Mr. Intellectual today. 
today and ask this brother the deepest questions that he has ever heard. I'm not going to pretend that I'm Norm Nixon. So I'm not I'm not doing that. But I am really grateful, man, that you took some time. We met a number of years ago at uh, Post and Beam restaurant I had out in, in L.A. And it's actually a little, a little bit of an interesting story. Tanahasi came in one night with Brian, Ryan Coogler, who I know you're very good friends with and work with and all of that. And I happened I to be having to meet him, Brad. I was supposed to meet him and he was kind of late and you saw me. Right. I saw you. I saw you come in. Yeah. You remember that. Yep. And then I um, I was in there with Denzel. We were having dinner and actually at the corner table where, you know, we would normally hang. And I invited you over. You ended up sitting. Uh, you and Ryan, Ryan sat. And when Ryan came in, we, you know, we ended up kicking it, man, for a number of hours. And, his wife and um, yep. And uh, I hadn't met you. I, I recognized you and I, Denzel hadn't met you. And it was funny. So as Denzel realizes who ta is and at that time between the world and me was everything anybody was talking about denzel was doing um what movie Equalizer was that? Two. he was on a sequel Equalizer to the movie. right mm-hmm. and he had a book scene where he was going to grab a richard wright book and instruct his the, the young brother who was following him on what to read and he switched it up when he met ta in that moment and called antoine <laughs> Fuqua and said we're putting this book in the movie you remember that i do do very much that was that, funny. that, that, that night is legendary because uh, really both of y'all were so generous with your time. Like I remember at one moment I was like, look, I'm a I'm a I'ma get up like before Ryan got there because I didn't want to I was like, I'm clearly I don't want to intrude anything uh-huh. like that. And then I was like, nah, nah, nah. And my wife was actually supposed to be it and her plane got delayed. And so she finally gets there like like late, like midnight. And I went on and on about being able to sit there with this guy. <laughs> and she well, I'm gonna, I won't embarrass you, but you wrote me, man, a really nice note. We have a uh a mutual friend in the legendary attorney Nina Shaw, who I've been friends with for for many decades, and uh, you also work with Nina. Which, you know, I, I feel fortunate to be in Nina's orbit. Mm-hmm. Um, but you wrote me a really, I mean, out of the blue, I wasn't expecting it. A really nice note. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it was, you know, it was some nice personal thoughts in there. But you said something that I just wanted to read, if you don't mind. It says, "You said it means something to sit down and have two black men who have seen much more than we have, meaning you and Ryan, who know about prominence, who know." about both the rain and the mud. I want to thank you for that. And I want to thank you for inviting me into your space with Denzel. I know that time with friends is precious and that you would extend that space to include Ryan and I was much appreciated. Best to you. We'll look you up the next time in LA. And you did, man. You, you know, you came back to the restaurant several times. And so just, you know, I wanted to touch on that, man, because you're, you're a real brother, man. I mean, you're not this cat that I mean, we all read about you these days, but I, I think going back to that point, there seemed to be a little, you were just starting to experience like this jolt of, of fame. Am I right. correct in, in reading that? Yeah, that's, that is correct. That is correct. And um, really treasure the opportunity. And I know Ryan does too, because, you know, we spent a good deal of time talking about that and, and going back and forth on some of the, the things that come with it. Uh, you really, really appreciate when people who have been in it, um, and brothers who have been in it, if I can be quite frank about that, mm-hmm. um, and have navigated it will spend their time and talk to you. You know, it, it wasn't a mistake that, that we came there that night. You know what I mean? Like, uh, and I say it wasn't a mistake to the extent that I think me and Ryan was trying to figure out, you know, because it was supposed to be us and our wives. We were all, you know, for us, we were going to have dinner that night, you know, and, I, and we eventually did it, you know, later. But um, we were trying to figure out where to, where to go that would be relatively low key and maybe more importantly, where we would feel at home. Mm-hmm. And Ryan said, I, you know, I got the spot, Post and Bean, you know, as, as my recollection is, I think it was, you know, and I, I don't, I don't think that's accidental. You know, um, you know, look, I love food, um, but a dining 
dining out experience isn't just the food. You know, like it's a deeply emotional experience too, you know? And it took a while for me to figure that out, but I, you know, I know it now, you know? And 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 obviously, you know, the food is great at Post and Bean, but um, it's not just the food. You know what I'm saying? Like we were looking for a moment, you know what I mean, to be together and to feel like, um, like we could be together and not on display. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like we could, you know, be in a home place and, you know, to, to be there and, you know, to run into, you know, someone, you know, in Denzel who had navigated this on a level that, you know, I think neither one of us, you know, really, you know, uh, uh, can even begin to totally comprehend. Um, and then to also be there with, with the pr- proprietor, you know, who also made it feel like, you know, who's responsible for that, that home. I mean, that, that just, that was magical, man. That was everything. Was, just, if you'll, if you'll permit me, just one, one thing on that. Please. Well, really quickly. Um, mm-hmm. I spent a year living in France and one of the most amazing things about eating there was how you would come into the restaurant and the person that greeted you in the restaurant would be the damn owner. You know what I mean? And sometimes the person that actually literally served you was the person, like it was their spot. Like they, you know what I mean? Took, like it conveyed a great deal of pride and a sense of wanting you to feel at home, you know, in a way that was very, very new to me. And so that was like kind of the experience that I had, you know, come, come in the post and being. So it was, it was, it was really, it was really important to me. I really appreciate that, man. You know, I'm a little older than you and, you know, a product of, you know, the, the sixties, my parents, my dad, you know, part of the civil rights movement and I'm a beneficiary of that. And from my purview, Tanahasi, you know, in the restaurant world, you know, my dad's place, the cellar in New York, he bought in 73. Mm-hmm. And I know you were, you were, I don't think you were born then. I think you were, no, you were not. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and so what I observed, man, we had our clientele was, we were on the Upper West Side of Manhattan and our clientele was almost exclusively black, like 98.8%. Where was it? Where, 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 where was it? Where uh, 95th in Columbus. Okay. Right? okay. Yeah. And during that time, a lot of, I'll say middle-class black folks had moved to the Upper West Side when Harlem got a little treacherous in the 70s, you know, through heroin and, and crack, you know, the, the streets were just not so cool. So businesses were, had moved a little bit south and we had four black-owned restaurant bars and nightclubs within a few block radius, right? And every Friday night, you would see Art Blakely down the street. You'd have Keith Sweat, Melissa Morgan, Najee at our spot. We ended up going to comedy. I hired people like Chris Rock, Tommy Davidson, Phyllis Sickney. So you had this hub of black culture happening within a four or five block radius between 73, 74 and the mid 80s. Then what started to happen was places downtown, you had B. Smith, Shark Bar, uh, Jezebel, other places. I opened a place a little bit further south. And black Black folks started to venture a little further south, right? And that's not to say that there weren't some Cafe Desartes got some fancy folks that went there. Ed Bradley lived not too far. So certainly black folks had ventured out. But as as a as a large percentage of us started to explore the city, the home base got weak, right? Mm-hmm. And the, 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 the neighborhood businesses started to suffer. And this is something that I see as a result of desegregation, right? Mm-hmm. The neighborhoods, South LA, where Post and Beam is, same thing happened there as the community left and moved to other places where they couldn't live before Hancock Park, West Hollywood, Malibu, wherever, destabilized the businesses and it destabilized the community. So when you see places like Harlem start to make a resurgence and LA start to make a resurgence and businesses and folks like you and Ryan and Denzel able to hang out at a place like Post and Beam on a Friday night, that means a lot to the black community to see you guys in the room, you know. But then as you start to rise in prominence, um, do you feel the tug away 
from that home base again. And as these neighborhoods gentrify, we're starting to lose some of that population. Just curious how you see any of that. I don't, man. I don't. You know, um, I, I lived in Harlem from 04 to 2010, so about six years. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the best neighborhood I ever lived in. And I would still be there <laughs> if most of my friends hadn't moved to Brooklyn. You know what I mean? And so it becomes like a distance thing of you wanting to be, you know, closer. But like um, for me, my, my, my base and, you know, whatever, you know, powers I've been able to exert, you know, in, in, in my literature uh, are very much rooted in, in black institutions. You know, um, mm-hmm. I can't really, really imagine my life as a writer without my time at Howard University. Like that's just, it's just, it's just really hard for me to, you know, mm-hmm. see anything else. And so, um, you know, it's interesting because I, I, I came up a little different also, you know, my dad, you know, activists have been in the Panther Party and everything. And I was raised with a, you know, a deep sense of reverence. Well, my parents were trying to impart a deep sense of reverence for black institutions, uh, which I think we have right now. But at the period I was coming up, I think actually it probably is about the time that you're talking about in terms of folks, you know, moving away. That really wasn't the way the world was going. You know, I think and maybe some of that is natural. You know what I mean? Like you've been, you feel like you've been caged. You right. know what I mean? You've grown up caged. You, you want to see what's out there? You want to experience some other things. Yeah. Yes, you want to experience some other things. So in that, in that respect, it's understandable. And, and you know, I, I, I like other things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I do, but I also love home. Mm-hmm. I also mm-hmm. really, really, really love home. And I, I have a strong desire to have identity, to know who I am, to have a base, to have a place to go to. You know, um, you know, obviously that, 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 you know, you know, even as I was naming the restaurants in New York, there are other, other things that, that, I, that I like and enjoy. Um, and it's nothing wrong with that. I, I think you can have both. I think you can have a sense of place and a sense of home. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, you're, you're, you're not curious about, you know, about the world. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I, I, and I do think, though, that that's the balance that, you know, as a as a restaurateur and as an, a business owner, that's that's the balance that you hope the the heart and soul of our community would adopt. We don't expect you, you know, to only patronize, right. you know, our spot. We I have I'm curious. I love food. I, I love right. sushi. I'll, you know, I, I love to move around and eat wherever. But I won't forget, you know, when I when I check into New York, I'm going to head uptown man. I'm going to hit mm-hmm. a spot uptown for sure. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that that's important that we check in with each other like that. And um, as long as we don't view our things as inferior, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like as long as we right. don't see what we got is somehow less than. I, look, I will tell you, especially around food, I have, and, and maybe I had to have this experience. I have now had, you know, fine dining and had uh, um, checks put in front in front of me that was stunning. And I've done it enough times, which I can count on one hand, to realize that, and I had this discussion with my wife, the experience, the actual experience was not necessarily superior. <laughs> Right. The fact that I paid more for it did not make it a better overall experience necessarily. Yeah. And so, you know, we got we got to understand that. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. And it goes back to what what's important to you. You know, what resonates with you about that experience? Is it the food solely? Is it 10 courses or do two courses do just as well when the (laughs) owner gives you a hug and knows who you are and gives you that table and that vibe and the music's right? And you just feel like, yeah, man, I don't even have to think about this. I love this. That's right. Right. It's an emotional experience. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about um, writing because I've I've heard, you know, you say some, of course, you know, you always say some interesting things. But, uh, you know, I kind of feel like when I first read about you getting the Superman experience, and of course, I'm not going to ask you to divulge anything about it because I'm sure that it's top secret and uh, Fort Knox and all that. But, 
Um, you, you said that myth writing is, it gives you a certain freedom to imagine, um, you know, where, whereas journalism, you're talking about facts and things that have already happened. In writing about fantasy, you get to create a, 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 a different world. I'm, 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 I know I'm not quoting you exactly, but you know where I'm going with this. Could you, could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, look, I, I think of it all as political acts. You know what I mean? Like when I, when I think about, um, the journalism, it is, you know, grappling mostly with things as they are. But I think largely, um, our ways of seeing the world, our ways of deciding what we think is possible and what we think, um, is not lies in the realm of, 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 of creative art, lies in the realm of myth, you know, lies in the world of fictional storytelling. Like th th there's a reason why, and I think these things are related. We have certain impressions of black people and Gone with the Wind is maybe short of the Bible, the best-selling book in the English language. I think those two things are related. I think, you know, again, how we see black people is related to the fact that um, Birth of a Nation is considered, you know, the most revolutionary. I mean, that got screened at the White House, right? It is. There it is. There it is. That has impact. You know, that 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 absolutely has impact. And so, like, even, you know, over, over you know, the past year when we've seen folks trying to take down monuments, there's one way of looking at that and saying, well, what is that going to do? Well, mm -hmm. I actually would argue that monuments reflect who you deify and who you think of as heroic and who you think of, you know, who you valorize and who you validate in your mm -hmm. culture. And that in turn, you know, has an effect on, you know, who you think is worthy of being included in your culture. I, I think Stone Mountain in Georgia is directly related to what folks are trying to do in Georgia right now. Mm -hmm. you know, they're, they're not they're not disconnected. You know, it's about who you you know feel is human and who you think is worthy um, and who you think should be cut out of the country, you know. And so um, I think the art, you know, in my, you know, um, extension, you know, the myth, you know, of, of who we are is extremely, extremely important. I feel, you know, and this this may just be me, but. In you getting that writing assignment, I mean, like any kid my age, I was a fan of Superman. You know, I, I dug how he, you know, was Clark Kent and took off his, his suit. And next thing you know, he's flying through the sky to, to save the day as Mighty Mouse, you know, was known to do. Right. Um, but in asking you, having you write this story at this time, being who you are, it almost feels to me like we're looking to you to save the world. You know, what do we do? I mean, superheroes are known for justice. Right. And and kind of upholding the government's idea of what a crime is and solving that. But in terms of like solving society's problems of homelessness and all the, you know, racial inequality, economic inequality and all those kinds of big issues, that's not the job necessarily of a superhero. But I'm just I'm, I'm wondering if you feel any pressure that way, being who you are to come up with some solution to the world's issues. I don't. Oddly enough, mm -hmm. um, I, I feel tremendous excitement. You know, I feel really, I feel tremendous excitement. You know, um, I feel like it builds off of some of the other work, you know, I've been doing. Um, and I'm just, I'm just really, really excited, which is not to say I don't have big expectations. I do. Sure. Um, but I also think I'm capable. Mm -hmm. um, it's a challenge. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> but, you know, I, I do think I'm capable. Yeah. Well, I, I believe that too. I'm going to read something that you said, Tanahasi, and get your reaction to it. And it, and it kind of brought up for me again, going back to the, the subject of music. But you said, 
looking out at the complexity, the tangled mess of the world and trying to divine some sort of clarity. The highest calling for journalists is to try and explain why and to try to figure it out myself. I don't understand why either. Um, you know, I would, I went out for a walk last night and, and I was listening to, um, the Commodores, uh, Zoom. And, you know, the, the line, I'd like to fly away. I listened to that song quite a bit this past year. And, you know, it just, it just occurred to me that, you know, the, 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 what lyrics do in a song, what music does in a song is kind of the same thing that you're talking about there and trying to understand something and, and untangle it a little bit. Does, does music work for you in this? The same way? Do you do you see the analogy? Yeah, you know what? You know what it does. It it um there are things that can't really be spoken or said. Like there there are emotions that that you feel, and you know, like for me, what what I what I get from music is um you know like I had to I had to write this story uh, on on Barack Obama. I was telling somebody this the other the other day, just as you know he was leaving office. Um, and much of it was written, though not all of it. Much of it was written after uh, the 2016 election, and there was like this sadness that everybody had, you know, everybody around me had and everybody I was interviewing, you know, for the story had. <laughs> and, you know, like I kept playing Marvin Gaye's Distant Lover. <laughs> <laughs> because I was like, there's a sadness here. And I was trying to explain this to somebody else just the other day. Like, there's a sadness. There's a, a feeling of what you thought this country could be. Mm. This moment feels like lost to you. Like, it feels distant. And the tragedy of that, the feeling of that, the sadness of that is not something I on my own sitting in a room felt like I could find the words for. Mm. And so in those moments like that, like, I really, really turn to music. You know? Um, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like when I, when I I feel like, like I'm not really capable of getting it myself. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I turn to music. You know, you mentioned that uh, Barack Obama, and I was curious because I'd heard you say something about, I think you were answering a question um, at NYU. Uh, you were on stage and, and a woman asked a question that said, you know, at some point she was going to think about running for office and she'd like to recruit you, you know. <laughs> um, and you said, you need to stay as far away from me or I need to stay as far away from you as possible. And, and, and I thought about that and I wanted to ask you because it what what and again going back to you know the basketball metaphor analogy whatever it reminded me for a moment of the relationships that uh, referees might have with NBA players <laughs> where you know they have to call the game right they have to call travel walk foul whatever tell call the technical throw the guy out of the game whatever it is and and have a lot of reverence for these cats man they see the the athleticism and the prowess of it but after the game they can't hang out they got to go their separate ways. Is, is that kind of the relationship that you were alluding to? Because you have to call these these people on what they're doing. Do. That's, that's you part do. of your job. Yes. And so I don't really hang out with them. <laughs> I, don't, I really don't. I, I haven't uh, had a direct conversation with Barack Obama since 2016. Uh, and I'm not saying that like, hey, Barack, why don't you call me? I'm saying that like, <laughs> that's, that's as it should be. Mm -hmm. um, that is exactly as, as, as it should be, you know, because once you start, you know, becoming friends with people, like you you really like, and I've, I've had that. It's not like I would avoid, like, you know what I mean? Like, but if I thought mm -hmm. something was becoming a friendship, I just would never comment or write about that person again. Mm -hmm. you know? um, that would basically, you know, disqualify me from, you know, saying anything. That would generally be my, be my feeling. And it doesn't mean that you hate the person or detest them. It's like you said, you know, you have, you know, a lot of times you have great respect, mm -hmm. you know, for the people and you watch them do things and you think, my God, I can never do that. You know, um, I'm talking about in a good way, like in a praiseworthy mm -hmm. way, you know, uh, but you still, you still got to make your call. 
calls and, you know, write what you write. You need the space to do that. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, when you look back over the last year and again, uh, you know, I, I did note that you were that you were quiet. I know that you quieted yourself on social media, um, your own choice, of course. And um, you said some interesting things about what you thought about Twitter and and how it just, you know, kind of instigates arguing and, and it can be just very mean and, and that you felt that maybe it was better for you to just kind of step away from that kind of back and forth. But when you look back over this year, Tanahasi, what what stands out for you? What troubles you the most about what we just saw? I mean, I what a crazy I mean, I thought when Kobe passed away at the beginning of the year, I didn't I mean, obviously other things can happen, but you know, what a what a terrible start to the year and and who would have known what lie ahead for us in the in the coming months and what we would see right up until you know the following this past year January 6th and the insurrection at the Capitol and just all of the mean spirited just everything that we saw it felt like everything that we felt good about that you alluded to earlier with with Barack just got balled up and thrown away and it, it just did a 180. Um, what, what stands out to you um, about all of what we've just experienced and uh, you know what we continue? I'm one shot in on Pfizer. I hope I'm going to get another one on Sunday and hopefully that puts the, the, the virus safely behind me, but I don't even know if that's the case. But what, what stands out for you, man? Probably just um, the continued unwillingness on certain parties in this country to share, to share the country. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what January 6th is about, you know, just a general desire not to share. I mean, I tried, you know, uh, extending the basketball metaphors in here. Um, If LeBron says the only foul calls I'll respect are the ones that, you know, go against the other squad. Like, I'm not, I'm not, like, I'm not respecting any other call by, well, you can't have a game then. Right. You can't, like, if if, if players say, you know, listen, we're not, we will only respect calls that advantage us. And when they don't, we want to see changes. Um, You don't have an NBA. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, you just don't. It all falls apart, you know, because there's no uniting thing that, you know, allows folks to to, to respect, you know what I mean, what's, what's going on. And so we, and that's the situation we kind of have, you know, is, you know, unless the call, you know, goes in my direction, I'm not going to respect it. It's fraud, you know. Um, if that's the case, you really be that media, uh, be that um, election officials, secretaries of states and, you know, states throughout, you know, the country. When, when you when you got a situation like that, you don't, you, 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 you begin to fear. Uh, for the exact nature of a country that you have or whether you even have a country at all. Um, So it's a tough time. It's a really, really tough time. Yeah, yeah. Hard not to be discouraged, you know, when you when you try to just as a citizen, man, you think of, you know, what what am I supposed to do <laughs> you know, when, in in seeing this? You know, what what am I supposed to do? I want to turn to uh, a beautiful struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I read Between the World and Me and, and loved that. But I, I wanted to go back and revisit um, your memoir, man, because I just thought. You know, it was just it was poetry. Mm. And I know that you felt or you've said that you didn't think of yourself as that great a poet, uh, you know, at, at a certain point in time. But you do have a way with words, obviously. And I love that you talk about, you know, the economizing, you know, and, and saying as much as you possibly can with as few words as possible. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to explain to my wife what it was specifically about this book and, and your writing style that that touched me. So and then I read a 
gentleman who wrote for the LA Times, uh, Walton Mayumba. I don't know if you know who he is, but uh, he said that uh, Coates' prose style and literary prose are hip-hop sharpened. He believes in the art of dexterous reference, potent lyrical critique, and political storytelling. Mm. And for me, that's what it was. It was There was enough of, you know, my language as a kid, even though I'm younger than, older than you, there was enough reference from the street. But then you would just balance that with something so profound um, that I, I felt like I hadn't read this before, mm. you know, and that's the kind of feeling you get when you read Baldwin. Mm-hmm. So I'm just curious if you feel that, and, I, and I've also heard where you don't really like critiquing your own reading or your own writing rather. So I won't ask you to do that, but do you think that there's some accuracy in terms of how he tried to explain uh, your writing style? Um, Yeah, 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 I do. I do. I do. I mean, and, and even in what you just said, you know, in terms of, you know, feeling like you hadn't read it before. I mean, that's that's generally the job. Um, you really try to write a book on its own terms, um, which necessarily means that it not sound like the last book. You know, um, you, you I try really hard not to fall into that. I'm always looking for, I mean, half the work is what is the voice of this book? Mm-hmm. And I usually don't start off knowing that, you know, it's an act of, act of exploration to try to get that nailed down and get that figured out. Well, you certainly did that with uh, your memoir. You know, and it's interesting. Denzel says that he, you know, to use a metaphor, he says that he considers himself a cup maker. And when the cup is done, That's he real. just pushes it off to the side and moves on to the next cup. You relate to that? I do. I do. Because because art appears so magical to people because they see it at the end and they don't see any process. It's just the cup just sort of appears out of nowhere to them. They, they don't really understand how physical art is. Like you have to actually do one, two, three things like their steps. That's not to denigrate, you know, the genius of, you know, say somebody like a Denzel, but it, it, I, you know, I'm certain that it's, it's very much a craft, mm-hmm. you know, it's very, very much a craft. And so when it's done, um, the audience has a very, very different relationship to it. You know, like they see the cup, they right. don't, they don't have the relationship to, you know, to making the cup. They don't have a relationship right. to how to make another cup, <laughs> you know, like that's not really, you know, w- w- what they have. And that's okay. You know, you just come to accept that, mm-hmm. you know, it's just a different experience. It's going to be a different mm-hmm. experience. It's funny. I think when you say that, I think about people that walk into a crowded restaurant on a Friday night and think they want to be in the restaurant business, you know, because they see insane. the finished product. You, know? like, you have no idea. I think, I think I, it's it's really wild. Yeah. It's really, really, really wild. I mean, I think um, there are certain things, and obviously, running a restaurant is one of those because it's the first thing a lot of celebrities do <laughs> for um, some reason. For some reason, and it's like um, the, I, I don't know if the difficulty is hidden. Like, there's so much like underneath that they really, really can't see. Writing is like this too. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like every, oh, I want to write a book. I'm, no, you don't. No. <laughs> I mean, maybe you do, but probably if you did, you would have done it by, by now. <laughs> and I say that not to be condescending, but because people who really do it at a high level, if they could do anything else, probably would be doing it. You know, this was all I had. You know, I heard Chris Rock say this one time about, you know, stand up comedy. You know, he said, look, this is the only thing I was really good at. You know, this is what I had, you know, and it's very much the same thing, you know, for, for, for me, you know, when it, when, it, when it comes to writing. But because people often have this relationship with art where the last thing they see is the finished thing, mm-hmm. they, don't, they, 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 they don't quite get, That's you right. know, 
That's mm-hmm. right. You know, you um, you bring up that uh, it was the only thing that you could do. And, you know, people would be I was surprised to learn that you were not that great a student oh. you know, in, in high school and Terrible. and that you had insecurities. And I, I related to that as a as an insecure uh, young man. Mm-hmm. And uh, but you did have a love. Right. And I want to talk about I want to I want to read a little excerpt from uh, page 215. It said I could have stayed like that forever. And you're talking about your djembe. Is that how it's pronounced? The drum? Yeah, you got it exactly right. That's it. Right, djembe. Drumming my way in and out of various corners of Baltimore. I did not know where it led, but I would have slept on heat grates, worn scraps and overalls, shaken my cup down on Charles Street and dined in the basement of churches if I, if I could have just left things the way they were. My talent was second tier and I knew I would always be a workman, a support player for someone else's glorious show. But I was so in love and so the spirit, I just did not care. Do you, did you, you love the drum that much? man and and I mean I relate that to basketball I I didn't take me as far as I wanted but I sure did love that game man right 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 and maybe you know obviously there are people who are not going to be you know Jordan or Dr. J and that's okay Like, like they just love it. They just absolutely, absolutely. And that was how I felt. There were so many, you know, folks who I saw that just clearly were better than me mm-hmm. um, and were going to be better than me. But the feeling I got was about as close to, you know, a, a religious experience as, as, as I've had. It was tremendous. Yeah, I loved it. I loved it. And I would have, you know. Um, Do you still play? Mm-mm, no, because no. it's the kind of thing that, because your hands, it calluses up your hands. And your hands kind of have to get calloused up in order to do it. You know what I mean? Consistently, because the first thing that happens is your hands get busted up. You know, um, and so it's not like a thing, you know, you can really dip in and dip, dip out on. Um, but I, I would have stayed, you know, but my, my parents were like, you, you, you got to get out. You got to see some things, you know, you and if you decide you want to come back to this, fine. But you really, you, you, there's something out there for you. Yeah. Um, you can't make this decision at 17. Like they just wouldn't allow that. Folks, I know we're very instrumental in, in continuing to steer you in the direction that they did towards Mecca, where you, where you ended up. I want to talk just before we go here. Um, I, I watched a, um, a conversation that you had with, with uh, with AOC recently, man, and I and I have to say, I mean, I've been a fan of hers, but that is one sharp, sharp young lady. Boy, and the she has some things to say, man. Would, it, yeah. would you not agree? I definitely agree. I definitely agree. And um, this doesn't, I think, come across because you know, um, you know, I don't even want to say her media depiction, but I, I think because she's so far outside of the, you know, although increasingly less so, out of the mainstream, because she's such a bomb thrower, um, she is like, like as you said sharp you know what i mean and 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 self-considered and not about weirdly enough like the spotlight and, and that sort of thing um you know very very sincere to the extent that i actually wonder how long she'll last in politics because there's just a, yeah. a sincerity um behind her she is somebody by the way who i would not write about at this point mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, I, just, I know you kind of alluded to that in yeah. in your conversation with her that uh if she were to you know you just felt like that it would be hard for you to maintain the distance that you would, would ordinarily need, right? It would. It would. It would. Yeah. I just I just wouldn't, you know, I'm too big of a fan. I'm too big of a nut. Let me, let me read you a couple of things that she said in that conversation, get your quick reaction to. This one just really caught me. No one ever makes a billion dollars. You take a billion dollars. Yeah. And that was, that was like hard. Like, I mean, I, you know, obviously begun to, to think about that, but her point I think is, is so obviously through my own writing, um, I got to a point financially where I never thought... <laughs> 
I'd be. You know what I mean? Like I just, mm-hmm. I just never, I never, I never thought it was, it was, it was even. It wasn't something I was aiming for. It wasn't, you know, it just kind of happened. And one day I looked around and I realized I basically had everything I wanted. You know, I could travel when I wanted to travel. You know, I could eat as I wanted to eat. Um, I still cooked because I, I, you know, I enjoy cooking. I had come up cooking. Um, I could have what I wanted to have, and I didn't have to check like my bank balance. And it happened overnight. Like it just kind of. Bam, happened. You know, um, like one day I was one place and the next place, day almost literally I was somewhere else. And I realized that there were people who had many orders times that amount of wealth. And, you know, you live in New York City and you walk through the streets and you you, you live, you know, where I live, for instance, and, and there's a um, crate and barrel down the street from me. And you see people literally sleeping outside of the crate and barrel. Um, you come to, you know, Los Angeles, you know, as I did, you know, to write. You know, you know, out in Venice, and you see like basically whole camps, right. you know, of, of, of homeless people. And I think uh, Alexandria's point was like, how, how do you tolerate that? Right. Like, how how, how do you tolerate? And how much do you need? How much right? do you need? How much do you need? How much do you really need? You know, like that. That to me is like, how much do you really like? At what point is it just superfluous? It's like I, I have a you know a table full of food over here. There's no way I can ever eat all of the food I have on my table, and I'm literally looking out, you know across my, my dining room and there are people starving on the floor. Um, I just, and then I wonder like what that, like what is the cost? You know, this is what, what Baldwin would say. What is the cost ethically to you and morally and spiritually to you to sit at that table and look out and see people like that? Like what what do you have to do? What what blindness do you have to embrace? How how does it ultimately- Cognitive dissidence, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So right. I mean, I, I found her to be just tremendous. Yeah. She, one other thing she said that makes me actually think about you. And I think this was an answer to what, you know, maybe your future plan question. And she said, I have less of a plan. I'm more waiting to see what the plan is for me. Yeah. And I think about you in that context. Mm. It just seems like your destiny is unknown as all of ours are, but you have some a high calling here, man. Do you do you feel that? You know what I have had to accept as a person that's not particularly religious that I, I'm, I'm really not in control. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, kind, I'm in control to a degree, but, you know, um, it's really not up to me, mm-hmm. you know, and part of that is there's a thing that maybe you think you're doing in a way that you think you're being in the world, but you really, if you're doing it right, can't really see how other people see you or how the world sees you, and so mm-hmm. you can't really see what your, you know, a, a effect is going to be, um, or what what you're called to. Um, so no, 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 I, I you know, I've, I've had to accept that, you know, my, my plans are kind of yeah. wrong, you know. Well, it's part of that untangling of that mess that you talk about, man. You know, the the ability, and, and you said something really cool about teachers. You know, and and the talent of that it takes to teach to understand yeah. a subject so well that you can teach it. So you know, that, that, you know, that people, had cliche. Thing, people had that mm-hmm. thing. People had to say, you know, those who can't do teach, and I think those people have never taught. Right, they got it completely wrong. <laughs> yeah, they got it. teaching is a thing. Teaching so. is a thing. So I want to wind down here, uh, Tanahasi, and, and um, you know, I'm going to uh, just run kind of a, a, a concept, an idea by you here. So Miles Davis was once asked, "Is there a black aesthetic?" Mm. and he said. Don't ask me, ask the Beatles. And <laughs> great answer, right? Miles. He said, Don't ask me, ask the Beatles. So I've, I've recently been doing some writing about restaurants and the black culinary journey and what have you. And I wrote an article recently that was titled The Black Restaurant um, about the, the black restaurant experience. It was titled mm-hmm. Peasant Food. But it's trying to define as a black restaurant tour what 
a black restaurant even means. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious if you can put into, you know, words, your thoughts about aesthetically what a black restaurant conjures for you. Wow, that's a great question. Oh, man. Um, No, the only thing that really is coming to mind is home. Mm -hmm. And maybe that would be different for different people. And I'm I'm not even speaking of like the cuisine necessarily or what folks are are cooking. Mm -hmm. But I know that's why I go. You know, I know that's my expectation. Mm -hmm. You know, um, maybe the capture, recapture some of that feeling that, that I talked about earlier, you know, with my dad and, you know, all the kids. I, you know, I want to go places that, you know, my brother feels literally my brother feels, you know, comfortable and feels at home at, you know, um, that's probably a woefully insufficient answer. Um, no, but not that, at all, because I, I think if we succeed at that, at giving you that that home feeling, whatever that is, that that is success. That's mm-hmm. what we're that's what we want. There's a um, Sylvia's has this little bar. Uh, Sylvia's and they had this little bar in their, in their dining room. And whenever I am lucky enough to be seated there, um, one of my best friends is friends with the family. It's like the, the greatest seat in the world. <laughs> you know what I mean? It really, really is about, and it is as much, I mean, I dare I say more, it, it, it's more about what's going on in that place. You know what I mean? Than the, the actual food. You know, I love the food, but that's not, you know what I'm saying? Like, that, Oh yeah, that, man. It's the rhythm of the room. It's how right. people are greeting each other. Right. It's, it's right. yes. what might be playing yes. on in Sylvia's. It might be a jukebox, you know, right. it just, it's, it's, right. it's a, yeah, yeah, I feel you, man. Um, before I let you go, so just in the news recently, you know, HR 40 is making some moves here. Um, what is how significant is what happened this week with the, the bill? And, and are, are you feeling like this this movement is significant? I think so. I think so. I think so. Because um, I know, you know, full well, 10 years ago, you know, HR 40 and reparations, they always say this. It was a Dave Chappelle skit. It was a joke, you know, and um, people are taking it seriously. And that really is the first step to, you know, something actually happening. Um, being treated like a something that was serious and worthy of the date. And here we are. Yeah. You know, South Africa did the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions back, uh, you know, when apartheid got, o- got overturned. And I, and I wondered what that would look like in our, you know, in our system if that were to ever happen. Um, so last, lastly, um, I've read when you've been asked about uh, your, your view of the future, are you pessimistic or optimistic? And you said, I'm pessimistic about the possibilities, but optimistic about the activism. Would you say that that pretty much still sums up where you are? Uh, I probably, you know, the older I get, the, the more I probably feel like I don't know. I'm probably more agnostic than I am pessimistic. Then you are pe- pessimistic. Okay. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Well, Ta-Nehisi, man, thank you so much for, for taking some time today, man. I know you're incredibly busy and, uh, you know, it was really an honor to get a chance to sit down and talk to you, man. So I, I really appreciate you joining me today. Wonderful. Thank you, Brad. And I will be out your way soon. I don't want to say on the podcast, but soon enough. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so, man. Be good to see you. All right. Talk All to right. you soon. Thanks, guys. So welcome to uh, the segment I call How We Move with uh, my dear friend, Ambassador Shabazz. That was, uh, that brother's something else, Ta-Nehisi Absolutely. Oh, real joy to listen to him, a sigh of relief. You know, I was thinking that as I stand by uh, to join the corner table at the end, it always enables me probably the only, the only pause I have in a week, you know, just busy moving. And it's not the kind of pause that brings on a stillness, but rather a 
a stimulation, right? A kind of stimulus, rather, um, a reflection and an affirmation. And it's really a pleasure and a reminder when I listen to the conversations that you have with, with your guests that amidst the, the lows or the trajectories of ache that we may be experiencing in real time, that there's this nugget, right? There's this, there's this oasis. There's this light that, that someone 20 years younger than us is journeying through um, the same kinds of um, hurdles and coming out on the side that, that has an exhale and that artic- is able to articulate it to two or three generations, enabling us to have him and him ever evolving, just evolving all the time. When I think about how long I've watched him, it's a different conversation I heard today. I mean, it's still the him of him, but it's the evolutions that he claims and um, diving into things of interest and steering clear of things that are not of interest and being very emphatic about where he is at any given time. I think it's great for this newer generation to hear someone not just follow the way, but like be the way. Yeah. You know, when he talks about in his memoir growing up in uh, in Baltimore and and what he valued then, you know, Perry Ewing's uh, 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 champion sweatshirt, you know, and as and as he put it, uh, some fly dimes in relationship to young ladies. He was actually talking about what someone else valued, not necessarily him. But, you know, growing up in that environment, but having two parents, his, his mom was a librarian, his father also a great collector of books and, and was with the member of the Black Panthers for a while. But a, a Ta-Nehisi Coates is no accident. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. You know, and I don't think I've ever been to a city, even in its rubble, where I didn't see promise. Mm-hmm. And we always presume and put areas of town and we stigmatize them and don't go there. You know, in New York, cab driver, if you want a cab, you have to stand on the downtown side of the street at one point because they didn't want to go uptown. They wouldn't go uptown, um, right? Yeah, go, going uptown New York. Um, and I always hear things about Baltimore, and yet I know Baltimoreans that I think are just dynamic. And maybe it is about the challenge in the space that that really does shape that diamond, right? That enables that birth um, of innovation to come through. I mean, should it be mm-hmm. easy? Should, should everything be flat? Should we flatline and expect there to be some kind of gift to emerge? You know, so my grandson, a middle grandson, um, was um, not surprising to us, but was accepted at all of the colleges he applied to. And he had people steering him away from Baltimore, you know, um, yet Baltimore is what he had his eye on at Johns Hopkins. And it was ideal for him. I wasn't apprehensive. I was mindful because of what's going on in America. But I knew for what he wanted to do with majoring in chemical and bio- biomolecular engineering, it's the only place for him to be. Mm-hmm. So it's like, what? Did I consider it the rubble or the danger zone or the or is it the place where he would emerge Baltimore? So you could talk about Baltimore in the negative, but there's always going to be this positive. And we need to not allude. I think in your interview, you talked about places where people have warned us not to go, you know, uh, you know, and on the other side of that barrier, I'm here in Louisville, Kentucky, and the whole area where Muhammad Ali lives is, you know, when they're touring you or you come here to live, they say, and don't go west of 9th Street. You know, from a New York perspective, you say, well, what's on 10th Street? Right. That's exactly where I'm going. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, when I went there, I realized it's just forgotten. I said, and, and strangers mm-hmm. that come, go. Mm-hmm. And my, I have these uh, three young people who are now unearthing stories and narratives and bridging the gaps. And just today, we were talking about those who laid the grid, those who are living amongst us who are seniors, and th- those that are their age, and how that baton gets passed, and what emerges mm-hmm. from a space that people kind 
kind of identify as the no man's land. And then you have something like a Ta-Nehisi Coates, not once, one year, not two items or books, but someone you actually pause to listen to. I couldn't wait to come on here today. I was hoping that I could be smart enough <laughs> to talk about him. And I think for me, just listening to his authenticity, which which is even more significant than one's intellectual prowess, it's just their genuine nature and what he gives. And then his, you know, of course, his literary ability to convey and translate. Um, and listening to you prepare also was exciting for me because I didn't get to read or, or do the that much advanced work, but knowing that you were diving into it and, and how it was moving you in preparation was exciting for me, which means that it's a book on hold when I can pause again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you know what, what I'm left with too, uh, Ambassador, is, you know, Ta-Nehisi had two parents who were extremely focused yes. on his yes. education. And, yes. and, you know, and when he left the house, he talked about needing to walk with groups because there was, you know, at any moment you could be vulnerable to getting yes. attacked by kids in the neighborhood and getting in fights and beat up. And, you know, it was it was dangerous. Right. And yet he did, you know, when he went on and made it, even though he wasn't a great student, he obviously has, you know, a, a real gift and a, and a talent. And I guess the question that I get left with, and I, I, it's it's rhetorical, but how many kids get lost in that? That could be that gem also, yeah. but succumb to whatever. And does it need to be that hard? I mean, I, I know that success should be something you work hard for, but should the early and the, and, the, and as he writes the, the title of his book, it's called The Beautiful Struggle. You know, so for, so for him, it has been that. But there are a lot of struggles that don't end up so beautifully. Oh, notwithstanding. But, you know, I think that depending on who whose hands we're in, you know, we know that at home, yet his parents, but who's at the school and how do we determine what smart is? I'm around academia all the time. And I wasn't a, a dyslexic student, yet brilliant, right? So people think that's an oxymoron. It's like having the knowledge, understanding it, but then waiting for someone outside of you to affirm it, mm. right? So he was always a good student, but according to whom? Obviously, he was a good student because we are the beneficiaries of that which he absorbed. So if the standard of good or right or correct or bright or whatever those things are, are based on someone from outside making that assessment of us, then we're never going to have the the um, the um, the title of being the, the best, the smartest. You know, Ali had to pronounce it himself, say it himself, and he was asked not to say it. So I think we all have that capacity to be exactly who we are to be, and it's the atmosphere we're in to assure it, um, to affirm it, to make sure that it happens, that it's not blocked. Um, you know, being my age now, I'm, in, I'm enlisted for that. I'm entrusted for that. But what if between 20 and 40, when I was navigating my own way, mm -hmm. that was called disruptive, mm -hmm. right? Against the grain. But when you think of any, which even even the way you move yourself as I, as you would be between, when you would be between restaurants, waiting for a different uh, paradigm shift and had an instinct that may not have been recognized or seen on the outside, but you were journeying your way to it. How will that manifest? Who will I touch? What's the curve? That's brilliance to me. And it's not based on who affirms it. It's just based on the fact that you could see it, feel it, 
it and then you manifest it. Well, see, that's why we always turn to you at this segment in the program, because you are you arrange these thoughts into words and you, you know, put them back to us in a way that, you know, adds some clarity, you know, for me and, and a deeper understanding. And you, you, your way with words is just fantastic. So thank you for uh, for that uh, spin on the conversation with Tanahasi and, and the perspective uh, that you offer today. That was that was really a great talk and uh, we appreciate it. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. All righty. Take care. Corner Table Talk is hosted by Brad Johnson, produced by Brad and Linda Ailes Johnson, coordinating producer Lauren Turner, theme music Life Goes On by Bryce Vine, executive producers Omar Thompson, Andrew Kalb, and Ken Johnson. Find the Corner Table Talk podcast wherever you get your podcast. Follow, subscribe, rate, and leave a comment. Corner Table Talk is a Say It Loud Network production. <laughs>